This is Decentralized, the Decentralized Trials and Research Podcast. We gather here with friends and guests to talk about the latest ways to make research and clinical trials around the world more inclusive, more accessible, more resilient, and more sustainable, all by using decentralized methods. This podcast is recorded live on Clubhouse every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, on the TGIF DCT show at the Decentralized Trials Club. You can join the live sessions and add your voice every Friday at noon Eastern time with the free Clubhouse app by following the Decentralized Trials Club. And of course, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform to get notified of new episodes. Following the club and subscribing will also help you stay current for any of the bonus content we may drop. And now it's time to decentralize. Why don't we get things started? Hello and welcome. You have joined us for another gathering, either on Clubhouse for our weekly gathering, TGIFDCT, or for some of you, you may be listening to the Decentralized Podcast through your favorite podcast channel. However you're joining us, please make sure you're following, liking, subscribing, whatever the button says on whatever app you like using, because that way you can stay current if we have some additional um, uh, additional content that we're dropping throughout the week. Well, we do gather here live every Friday using Clubhouse, Friday 12 to 1 Eastern time, covering a range of topics related to decentralized trials, implementation, adoption, regulation, policy, patient factors, technical factors, the list goes on and on. If you have a topic you'd love to see us cover, drop a line, send a note to myself, Jane Miles, Amir Kalali, use LinkedIn, use Twitter, use smoke signals, whatever works for you. And if none of those do, send an email to secretariat at dtra.org. Let us know what topic you'd love to see us cover and let us know if you'd like to make like our friends, Paul and Christopher joining as a co-host for a particular week. Of course, be sure to check out our prior content. We have been having these conversations with fabulous guests for well over a year. I think, Jane, we've got to be going on close to a year and a half. I ought to know this, but there is a lot of great content either here on the Clubhouse app by tapping on replays, or we keep adding a, a older content on the Decentralized podcast as well. So um, you'll see some old content over there on the podcast platforms. We'll keep dropping more of the most listened to episodes over there as well. But the Clubhouse app does have all of those programs. So it goes pretty far back in the Wayback Machine. Whew. All right. It's already been a busy week. Amir, I actually got to see you in person this week. I mean, that 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 I feel like rarely happens with us. You know, uh, it was great to see you. And, um, you know, I had a fabulous week at Bio. It really is kind of... Um such an international meeting and you just see so many people you know and meet many others you don't so that was great it was also uh, confusing to me as a west coast person um i always thought boston was nearer to canada than new york but uh, unlike new york and washington we had zero issues with the wildfires in boston so that didn't maybe someone on the call can explain to me how that works because i love to hear you know how boston escaped the uh, weather but it also made me think Craig the other day that um, thinking about DCTs can you imagine patients you know who have um, especially lung diseases who may be in a clinical trial in New York and if they were in DCT they could choose to stay at home and not necessarily you know go to the site when they're not supposed to stay outside right absolutely and those air conditions across really extending down the coast from New York down true that Boston seemed to get spared but so much of the coast uh, on downward, um, thick and dangerous for those who, uh, like myself, have uh, lung conditions that can make them vulnerable and susceptible. And certainly a good reason to say, I'm going to skip this visit unless you can give me another way to do it. Um, quick note, Amir and I were there uh, for a number of reasons, but including um, an interesting panel, Amir. And as Joe Dustin mentioned, I think on, on LinkedIn or somewhere else, look, there's Amir on a panel. He's used to seeing you uh, being the MC 
It was great having you there, Amir. And this was, of course, our panel at Bio, where we talked about collaborations supporting decentralized trials adoption and how do those collaborations work together and fit together for this particular panel. Of course, uh, we had uh, the participation of DTRA sharing their work and that was joined by colleagues from ACRO, the Association of Clinical Research Organizations with Karen Noonan and representing um, uh, the IMI Trials at Home program, uh, Kimberly Hawkins. Uh, this particular panel was also supposed to include representation from City, who unfortunately came back with a COVID test positive just before the meeting. But if you missed that event at BIO, don't worry, in just a few short weeks, we'll have a very similar panel at the DIA annual meeting. That Tuesday during the DIA annual meeting, if you're there back in Boston, back at the same convention center, and Amir, I don't know if I told you this, in the exact same conference room, we'll have another panel, this time featuring folks from ACRP, uh, Susan Landis, uh, the executive director. We'll have the fabulous Jane Miles, representing uh, DTRA. We'll have a colleague from uh, City there, uh, Kim Hawkins again, representing IMI Trials at Home. So, oh, and also Rob DiCicco from Transcelerate. So I'll have a number of voices of different um, organizations that we consider partners and allies at DTRA. Everyone um, needs to roll up their sleeves to make things work, but we have to make sure we're coordinating effort because there's no room for redundancy. We have to make sure that things can get handed off. I don't want to eat too much more time. Amir, any other big takeaways from bio this year that you thought were worth sharing? You know, it, bio really does have interesting conversations with leaders and thinking about, you know, what they're thinking about. There was certainly a lot of buzz about the IRA and the fact that Merck has sued the government around the Inflation Reduction Act, or as the bio people like to call it, the Innovation Reduction Act. Um, there was just a lot of interesting things. I, I'm certainly glad I went, for sure. The last thing <laughs> I I'll have not, by the way, heard that for the IRA, the yeah. Innovation Reduction Act. Yes, Ouch. they will def definitely Ouch. talk about that, uh, which I think they seriously believe in. Um, I mean, it, it, knowing Merck, I mean, it would have taken a lot for them to, you know, um, sue the government. And I think they've uh, been, if you read the wording of the actual document, it's quite strong. It sort of talks about extortion. So we'll see how that goes. Um, the, the last thing, I didn't mention this last week, but for those in the audience who are coming to DIA, don't forget there's a DTRA meetup on the Tuesday at the Omni Hotel right next to the convention center. Uh, and I think there's a, um, Jane, do you know this? I think there's an RSVP uh, out there for folks who may be interested. That's correct. Yes. So if you are one of the many uh, colleagues listening who are a member of DTRA, your organization that employs you is a member of DTRA, or you as an individual have joined DTRA, please be sure to uh, check out the registration to RSVP for that. It's probably over at DTRA.org, and if not, I think I've seen some posts on social, LinkedIn in particular, about that meetup with the link to connect. And we'll look forward to seeing so many of you there in person. Hey, Paul, are you going to DIA this year? There's a, there's a good chance, yes. Um, it's, it's conflicting a little bit with some family travel I have planned, but uh, I'm going to work around that with some other things we got planned later in the year. So, yeah, should be there. Looking forward to catching you up. You know, the good thing about DIA, Paul, is there's always another one. So, Indeed. You know, if you have somewhere good with the family, uh, we'll catch you at the next one. Or, you know, hey, Boston's great with the family, right? Uh, you know, unfortunately, there's no basketball championships left over there or hockey championships but there's other good things to do no doubt we're, we're huge fans of the whole witch culture there my son loves that so um you know we may may find a way to combo that somehow. brilliant brilliant plus it's not witch season so it's a little you know off peak for uh for navigating sales. exactly well, it's great to have you, Paul, here and your colleague, Christopher. Uh, Paul, for folks that have not had the pleasure, uh, could you take a moment and just introduce yourself, what it is you do by day, and then we can talk about the topic we have for today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Craig, and, and appreciate the invitation today. It's really cool to be here. Um, so, so I'm Paul Taylor. I head up what is called uh, our patient-first business here at uh, Thread Research. 
Um, I've been in the industry um, since pretty much the first uh, ePro diary went out the door uh, back in early 1999. So, you know, I could argue that we've been decentralizing ever since that point, right? Um, and uh, really, I've, I've grown up as, a, as an operator, learning how, you know, things work, how they need to work, evolving into the business commercial product side of things. And, uh, you know, I'm very passionate about um, lean thinking as it comes to, you know, serving our customers the right experience and, uh, frankly, a faster, better, cheaper um, outcome as it relates to the, the technologies and the implementations that we do today. So. Uh, I think we've got a very uh, uh, relevant topic that we want to discuss, and uh, yeah, really excited to be here, like I said. So, uh, Chris, do you want to you wanna introduce yourself? Yeah, hi, everybody. I'm Chris Watson. Um, I work with Paul, really uh, in Slade, as a consultant within the patient-first uh, business. My background is basically with science originally, but then with financial services, but I followed in back into, oh, sorry, I got drawn back into life sciences when the internet was the new thing, etc. across the world in there. And following that, I was almost like followed the, the wave of new technologies and moved from what was ClinFern at that time, then to support Exco in touch, where we then brought mobile technology into the clinical research space. And then basically my remit has always been about using technology to best endeavors to actually capture quality information from patients. And as Paul says, looking from a care perspective, almost treating that as the first decentralized piece but realistically where we're talking about from today is my financial background sort of got me on a tangent to think about regulations and always try look at regulations how that impacts business and really that's what i'm here there is from the regulatory slant to actually look at what we can do as a business to look at those regulations and address any well what we believe to be current misunderstandings that are in place sounds like a great topic for today you know after having a and a call with Paul just a couple of weeks ago, I felt like we could talk about a hundred different topics here together. There were so many interesting areas, Paul, to unpack. So, you know, get comfortable with that headset and make sure you uh, keep your Fridays free because we're going to pull you on back here again uh, for some of those other topics. But for this topic, this is really interesting and timely. You know, certainly decentralized in general is getting a lot more clarity with regulators thanks to draft guidance here in the U.S. from the FDA released last month, uh, draft or uh, recommendations uh, from uh, the European regulators issued back in December, um, as well as guidance from other regulators around the world, which certainly in some areas helps remove ambiguity. But guidance doesn't always fill all those gaps. Sometimes in some areas we, we may find that guidance leaves uh, even more ambiguity. So Christopher, on this particular topic, um, as, as you're thinking about your work at Thread, what are some of the key areas of, of ambiguity or um, well, let's call them myths to bust where people seem to be getting tripped up a bit around regulations and some of the work that you're delivering? Yes, and I think the biggest one, the main point we have here is the need for screenshots and localized content, which has always been used to support regulatory submissions. Now in reality, uh, this has been this is the first great misunderstanding that we've undertaken. There is is and the question basically with myself and Paul and we're talking about today is actually is there a need for this? Do we need to do this? And what has the change in the regulatory landscape done to reflect to maybe address this misunderstanding at that point in time? But the key thing because it's a burden. The need to produce screenshots, the need to produce localized content of those screenshots to support ethics pushes things very close to the line. It puts a strain on vendors, puts a strain on sponsors, puts a strain on CROs. And when we're looking at it and we're looking at this, we believe this is just fundamentally just as a misconception. So, so let's let's set the scene a little time. bit, Chris, if you don't yeah. mind, right? So I mean when you think about things, guys, right? Um screenshots and translated content that's what we're here to talk about today right so you know for some of the audience it might be hard to believe but there was a time when all of this was done on paper right going electronic with something new is kind of akin to inventing the wheel or discovering fire and uh you know there was reticence and misunderstanding around you know what going electronic meant and you know really to support the electronic implementation of of clinical outcome assessments for example the industry as as was then you know um unilaterally decided that in order to promote understanding within the irb communities 
of the minimal impact of electronic implementations on patients, you know, that we would uh, supplement IRB submissions with screenshots of the electronic implementation, you know, and as clinical research expanded globally and electronic adoption took off, this was extended to include localized screenshots for regional ethics boards. Hence, as an industry, we've kind of created this monolith, this expectation, but you know, this is something that's kind of grinded me for a while. The questions, you know, for us to really think about today are, you know, 30 years on, and that's really what it is. It's nearly 30 years since, you know, like I said, the first uh, ePro diary went out the door. Is this a relevant expectation to persist on, or, or have we really created a, a restriction that's, um, you know, I heard earlier that whole IRA comment, it was kind of funny, is, is, it, is it impeding with, um, you know, the innovation opportunity that we've got in this industry and, you know, our opportunities to delight our customers in a faster, better way? And, you know, is the expectation really supported by global regulations and practices today? So, so really, Chris, from, from your experience when it comes to ethics submissions, what really are the expectations? Yes, and I mean, globally, we all know the regulatory authorities abide by ICHEC, it's good clinical practice standards. And this is done to assess all materials associated for clinical trials. I mean, this guidance from the ICH actually predates, as you said, going electronic, because actually when we're going electronic, we're talking the mid-90s, the ICH came into force around the late 80s, early 90s. And when we look at this, I mean, that guidance is focusing on informed consent and any written information that is related to recruitment. That's where it fundamentally comes aboard. I hadn't thought about at that point in time about, say, COA and go, or even going electronic. But as an industry, we interpreted the guidance to apply to any written information and that any information is then thought about as something that's presented to the patient, irrespective of the mode of the content delivery, whether that be on paper or via electronic means. When you actually look at the ICH guidance, it doesn't really man it doesn't mandate the need for screenshots for COA or other patient or even other patient facing instructional content that participants may well see during the trial. I mean, this is summarised in a summary paper in 2020, authored by Argotel and the late Steve Raymond et al. Where they basically that summary was requiring screenshots of translations of all diaries and questionnaires into local languages is an expansive reading of the original ICH E6 guidance. So, so let me make sure I understand this. What you're basically saying is, is we've created this monster, right? Um, we've created the madness that we're all prescribed to follow that we're now talking about unpacking so that we can be more agile for our customers and you know, ultimately, even before we went electronic, we'd misinterpreted the true meaning of the, the ICH guidance. So so if that much is true, Chris... But, but Paul, you know, one quick question for you. I mean, as a product guy, shouldn't there just be a button I can press that can just automate and knock out all these screenshots and make it a, a non-issue? Or is it, really, is it really burdensome to have to navigate this and support all of those IRB submissions then globally. Yeah, so I mean, I think that the technical solutions are there today. It's not about the technical solutions. It's about all the cycle time of handing things over, waiting, responding, and all the waste that's associated in that. And frankly, the waste of money that, that a lot of the sponsors are, are spending for these unnecessary activities ultimately money that could be better spent on innovating user experiences, right? And innovating other components that truly need to change in this industry. So, you know, basically if 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 that's true, right? If if we have created this monster and um, we don't actually need to do this, you know, how do we go about, you know, applying a reset so that we can be more responsible and, you know, delivering the faster treatments to patients that, that the industry is after? And and I pose that question to Chris again. Yeah, so, I mean, yes, this has long been an issue. And as we know from industry, time progresses. But and then, because we're doing this, we're do, providing this service to the IRBs. This is now managing the expectations of sponsors and CROs and the IRB boards. They expect this to be a standard. They don't necessarily look back at the guidances to say, do they actually need it? But the problem is, as we know, when you set expectations, it does take a seismic shift just to reset them. And these seismic shifts in our industry are normally driven by regulation. So, so we're stuck in a perpetual cycle then, and, you know, it's, it's akin to Dante's eighth level of, of doom here, right? We've got to change this, guys. It's, it's inevitable that, you know, we, we continue to misinterpret guidelines and add all this waste that, you know, frankly, distracts us from what we're focused on. Chris? I mean, that's true. Um, we have been slow, but 
the good thing news is from a US perspective, this change has already been initiated by the IRB boards. I mean, in 2022, both ADVAR and WCG stated they don't expect to see screenshots of standardised occur in any part of their submissions going forward. At best, if required, they'll accept paper versions of the COA. And this aligns to the fact that COA forms part of the protocol submission and is approved by the FDA. So if you've got something that's been approved by the FDA, you told them what the COA is going to be, the COA strategy, the endpoint strategy is going to be. What is it for the what is it for the ethics stroke IB boards to do to comment on what the FDA has actually approved? So hence, this is a point where they've actually, from a US perspective, have taken a step back and actually then started to focus on the true intent of the ICH guidance and start focusing on center marketing materials. So I mean that's great from a US perspective, Chris. But as we know, are there any Paul? Are there any IRBs or Chris? Are there any IRBs where folks have submitted an app? Are there any where they actually want a uh, something downloadable or is your point they don't even need it stop asking for it these things are approved elsewhere basically it's that paul uh, sorry craig they don't need to see it they don't need to see the app etc it's just a different way of presenting the materials what they're concerned about is and this is where the all the ich guidance has come from and even the regulatory interpretation of the guidance are, just show me the base materials that could influence my patients so that you can confirm that patient safety has been maintained that doesn't have to be the app it doesn't have to be the electronic screenshots it just has to be what materials are you doing are you misinforming patients are you putting patients at risk so so when you think about it right that's great from a u.s perspective but as we know research is global right 31 percent of studies are u.s only well i think 53 percent of studies are non-us right the non-us stat includes the EU and running studies in the EU, has its challenge, namely around the breadth of languages which need to be supported um, on top of, you know, national regional authority, regional authority having the freedom to issue specific guidance and regulation for studies conducted under their jurisdiction. So, you know, really, Chris, the recent EU clinical trials regulation was introduced to standardise processes across the EU member states. Can you comment on that and what it means to the industry? Yes, yeah, I mean, this is yeah, the clinical trials regulation it came into force on the 31st of January 2022. And studies in the EU, and prior to that, studies in the EU were conducted under the clinical trials directive or CTD. Uh, what we're talking about prior to the CTR, the clinical trials regulation on board, when we looked at the directive, it meant that sponsors and CROs had to navigate regional regulations and multiple within country ethics committees. What the CTR does is to standardise that European submission process and, in essence, allows Europe's regulatory model to follow the US model, where you have a central protocol approval process for all member states involved, rather than having to submit the protocol to individual countries within the EU. And then that is followed, once the protocol has been approved, it's followed by country-level centralised IRB approvals, rather than them to go to multiple approvals. So it's a whole point is trying to simplify that process and provide the standardisation across the European Union. So talk to us explicitly about how it addresses the issue of screenshots and localised content. Yes, sir. I mean, the CTR process itself falls into two parts, nicely, easily called part one and part two. And it is important to understand what is included in each of these submissions. The part one process is akin to a protocol submission to the FDA. The part one submission should include the protocol, of course, but also the COA that are to be collected. And the regulation clearly states that the COA submission should be in, of the paper version of the COA and also be in English. Hence, screenshots are not required or even expected at that point in time when it comes to submission. This makes sense as part one submission, if approved, is valid for two years. And actually, many sponsors will get protocol approval well in advance of selecting a zero. So how will sponsors know at that point of the part one submission what the electronic screenshots will look like? Likewise, it's a brave vendor who will undertake screenshot development ahead of any protocol approval because this ultimately leads to change. And this changes the cost of vendors and causes delay. So what I'm fundamentally saying here is when we look about this, we're preventing a change and think we're, we're putting these activities up front in the part one and then actually stopping delay further on down the line. And this is the need to disrupt what we're doing to evolve responsibly. So what does the CTR state then with regards to the part two submissions where we are then relying on ethics approvals? Precisely. So part two is following up from the, I say, the protocol approval process. So we know that point in time, you've got 
And what part two does is you as a sponsor will go out to the member states that you want to run the study in. And that is where then the ethics, centralized ethics committees then will look at that. What I mean by that is previously there every a member state might have multiple ethics uh, boards. Uh, if you go to Spain, there might be one in the Basque, in the Catalan, Catalan region, might be one in the in the southern region of Spain, so you have to deal with multiple ethics. There's now a centralised function within Europe where a centralised, it could be a rotating ethics board, so it's one board, one approval, looks at the submissions that are included in the part two. This is simplifying the whole process and ultimately means that once it's been approved, it is approved by that member state. This helped reduce, as I say, reduce the number of ethics board interactions at the country level, making things slightly speedier as well and actually more streamlined, but also the CTR itself defines what is to be what is expected to be part of that part to submission process. Hey, let me uh, just jump in and see Amira Jane. You guys have been working around this space, and I'm sure have touched both on um, on ECOA and EPRO and and submissions. Jane, you have any questions from what you're hearing so far? Well, yeah, I do. Thanks for asking. Um, so I have two. Let's start with what might be the easier one, and that is now that there's a more centralized process, do you feel that the ethics boards understand that these, the, the detail we've been providing is not required? That's question one. Question two is a little harder. How does a sponsor navigate the CTR in a DCT trial where we might not have every site pre-identified, because I thought that was one of the quid pro quo elements of the whole process change. So you, you can take those separately, by the way, but I'm not going <laughs> to give up my opportunity. So, I mean, yes, I mean, when it comes down to, when it comes down to the CTR, I mean, I'll do, I'll do the navigate the CTR one first. Yes, you're right. I mean, as part of the process, when you submit your requirements for the centralized portal under CTIS, as you're going through the process, you are you do need to identify your sites up, up front and provide information of those sites in actually in the process. But that defining the sites as well is part of is the part two piece. So it's because well, you're defining a country mix and then you're aligning sites, you're then putting all the credentials and making sure that the sites are registered within uh, the CTS system, of course, the, the materials can be received in there. So the way it's broken down is yes, yes. Depending on how you do your, your submissions, you could do a part one, wait for approval, and then do your part two. And that's when you bring your sites and your country mix. You can do a part one and a part two at the same time. When you do a part one and a part two at the same time, that is when the expectation is around making sure you've got your sites in place. So it's possible. So there's a lot of upfront work to support that submission. And the thing about the CTR is ultimately possible, isn't it? It's a conveyor belt. It's a timed conveyor belt. When you start the process, you know that there will, by a given time point, you'll get a response. So there's a lot of pressure up front to make sure you've got everything in place. So hence, the, the terms on it, it does depend on your submission strategy as to how much pressure you're putting yourselves under and what you actually do need to have in place to support that. Okay, I'm going to double click though, because... Yeah. That one of the things that comes up in DCTs is that sometimes you want to enable the site based on where the patient is. Yeah. You're not going to know that at the time of your submission, I don't think. So how do you navigate that? And if we're going down a rabbit hole and need to have a whole topic on that, we can just say stop and we'll come back. It is a difficult one, especially the DCTR one there, but realistically it's all part of the design and the planning up front. So before you go to that stage, you need to understand, yes, you're totally right, that might well be that in a, in a DCT study, you may well have a Spanish patient who actually needs to be seen by a site in France, such across the board in there, because that's where this, or managed by somebody who's actually in France, isn't it? There's a different realm of regulatory controls around that, and it is mentioned in the DCT guidance of the recommendations that came in December. I've, it is discussed that, but I think that is a further topic of conversation because it is a minefield and it's a, it's all about planning and for being prepared for it. And that's been able to present that in a meaningful way at that point of submission. But I mean, Chris, could you argue, I mean, from an EU perspective, the adoption of CTR is really our reset moment, right? Yes. I mean, it fundamentally is. I mean, the good thing about that reset moment, as Paul says, the fact that the process now is a centralised process and is now set, it's clearly defined what is required for part one and what is required for part two. 
that is the point where we can actually ensure we can break down that, that need for ultimately to determine what needs to be submitted. And you're right, going back to the first question, which is really regards to do the ethics boards really understand what is the requirement for in, what they expect to get in the part two submission with regards to say their expectation being, oh yeah, they might have had screenshots before, I expect screenshots now. Fundamentally, it's just referring that. And actually, when you look at the, how the EMA, because this has been raised by sponsors, what do I do? I submit my COA in the part one, do I have to resubmit it in the part two? And in the question and answer part of the franchise regulations, it's try to address that. But like all things from a regulatory perspective, when you read it on the on the surface, it isn't clear because what they talk about from from part two is patient facing materials. But what you have to do is you follow the links and follow the, the regulations all the way through. What you actually find there is patient facing materials actually reverts back to what the ICA said. Patient facing materials is consent and page and recruitment materials in there. It isn't the ECOA, so there isn't a need to supply anything that's localised at that point in time. But it does take a brave, indivi brave individual or brave sponsor to actually step in there and say to IBs, no, I'm giving you exactly what the regulation states. Let me hit, let me, and then wait to see if they are challenged. Because the good thing about the CTR is it is an evolving process and they are supposed to learn. And it is new, but it is that point in time because this is coming to play now. All all protocols, all studies in the EU have to be, as of 31st of January 2023, submitted under CTR. So as such, this is, I would expect to see a seismic change happening because the reset button can be set now as the IRBs suddenly understand what is required and what their actual role is in this whole process. So, so I mean, if you think about it, right, we've created the chaos by misinterpreting the guidance for screenshot submissions since day one, right? It's on us right, as a group to drive the necessary changes with our customers um, and the authorities to reset and enable more agile implementation experiences. And yes, to answer your question before, Craig, it's easy to take screenshots. It's easy to automate all that sort of stuff. But it's yet again another waste item that is eroding the focus on what matters, which is bringing treatments to patients faster. And that's what we should be focused on at all points in time versus all this wait time that puts drug approvals at risk that unnecessarily adds risk to competitive scenarios where there's something meaningful that can go to market. So, you know, we're happy to go through more questions, but to, to comment on what Jane said before, this, this is something we need to think about changing and we need to try and influence as much, much as possible onto what Chris said it's on us to, to build that courage with our customers to try something different that, you know, frankly, the regulations support. Well, this is uh, this is our halftime point. We're at the uh, half game show here on Clubhouse. This is where we uh, do two quick things. We do a quick reminder for folks who may have just joined in the last few minutes. A quick welcome if you're here live with us on Clubhouse. TGIFTCT gathers every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, covering different topics around decentralized trials. Those topics come from you, the members of this community. So if you have a topic you'd love to hear, there is an email address in the chat. Secretary at DTRA.org is a great way to let us know what topics you'd love to hear and let us know if you'd like to be a guest host, just like our friends Paul and Christopher from Thread joining us here today on this week's topic, talking about the mess we've created around IRB submissions that we've created ourselves and some strategies to get through it and to get it right as it relates to the burden of submitting screenshots from electronic diaries for IRB submissions on a global basis. This is the point of the program where we like to open up the room. If you have thoughts, ideas, questions, experiences that you'd like to bring into the conversation, share those with uh, Paul and Christopher, share them with the community. This is your chance to bring in your voice. Uh, Jane, I, uh, do you have a, another question on your mind? Yep. You guessed it. I um, could tell. I could <laughs> I could see it from here, Jane. And then I, I also see a couple of good questions in the chat we'll jump to next. So I, I completely align with what you're saying, Christopher and Paul. And I'm thinking as an operator that it was my CRAs who always went through all the details and held me accountable to what they thought should be there or not. So how do we train that part of the workforce? Let's assume that the ethics boards 
know what's needed. How do we help the people who are really good at checking and finding discrepancies understand this isn't a discrepancy? So I think there's two parts of that. The first part I think we have to we have to recognize that is the elephant in the room is that companies are getting paid for these things as a service, right? So when you're trying to disrupt that, folks are going to blindly defend those revenue cycles because at the end of the day, when they're doing it on massive volumes like CROs are, um, you know, those are relevant revenue streams. And with a world that, you know, we're disrupting with decentralization, a lot of those revenue streams are, are at risk. So, you know, we have to we have to find new and relevant value add ways to, you know, help them past some of those hurdles. Uh, oh, these were my sponsor colleagues, okay? It wasn't the CROs. It was often my own internal team members who would be saying, no, we're at risk if we don't include X or Y. Yeah, well, I think you've got, that's that's the second part of this, which is educating and influencing and, and, and proving that the other pathways can work. And, you know, we've tried that. We've done that. And it's worked successfully um, for customers that want to take those, those, those more streamlined approaches. And, you know, Chris, I would ask you to add some color to that. I mean, certainly, when it, certainly, I mean, the main point is, is it is the CTR was a change and it is a major change and it is a, and that's a change for the better. And as an industry, we don't like change anyway. And it's actually trying to understand that, but, and it took a while from reading the regulations to actually come up with this picture because it, you'd love things to be in straight for black and white and straightforward, but it's, this is especially under CTRs. It's a legal framework. There are, it's got legalese all over the place, of course, so it doesn't it directly get to the point. But as you look into it, it's all about training, and it's going to have to be something where we guide things through and actually just build it out. But it is there, the CTR is there, CTR is there, the EMA is there to provide responses. They are regularly, every week, providing that feedback in. And it is just basically about then going back to those internal teams and actually saying, hey, things are changing. We need to address this and look at it there. And actually, be, have the, the the support to that two man and saying just to challenge it. Say no, is that right? Show me why it's right, and then see where they come back with from that point in time. But it's change is hard, but it is something that we need to do. So this is Amir. I would say Jane, this is clearly not unique to this situation, right? Where we we come come across this all the time. This is what uh, I call many people call the half circle of non innovation. So it's much easier to just do what you've been doing and not lose your job. And if you do something that, you, you know, is different to what you were doing, you, there is always the worry that, you know, what if what if it's wrong or what if the regulators don't agree? It's much easier for me just to do what I've been doing, right? I think in this case, in some ways, it's better because it, from what we hear today, there is no regulatory ambiguity around it. Like, it seems pretty clear that we don't need to do it. But I mean, it's just something we come across across so many different aspects of our work, which is it's much easier just to do what you've always been doing and you feel safe in. And as you know, Christopher and Paul pointing out, you know, it like anything else, it's leadership, it's education uh, to try and get people to sort of do it better. For sure. I mean, no Thanks. is the easiest answer ever. <laughs> but Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I would change that to yes and, and here's a different way to do it, right? I mean, that's that's fundamentally what we've got to educate. I mean, how many times do you have conversations with your customers when they're asking for something and you give them something, but maybe it's a bit different to what they're used to, you know, having and they learn, practice that, and they're okay with it, right? We've got to, we've got to handle a lot of this at the institutional level with, you know, the best practices and operating models that our customers have. And, you know, when we handle that at the right level, change is possible but you know when you're trying to do these changes at a study team level you know that's probably not the right arena to make that change when you're in the middle of a you know six to eight week sprint to get to fpi um but you know as you move into your governance models with your customers you really should be talking about these things because we collectively as an industry need to evolve this thinking so that we're not spending our time on unnecessary tasks exactly exactly right you don't That's have great. to sell me on it. I'm just looking for the practical implementation steps. So I heard governance is great. Yeah. And then what about evidence? Do we have evidence we can help those study teams understand they're actually de-risking here? 
We absolutely do. Yes, we've completed these activities with other customers, and so 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 many of you that I see in the the list of folks here for the companies that you represent. Right, the the difference is is we're doing those in situations where we're up against the gun from a cycle time perspective to get studies to FPI based on strategic goals of the sponsors instead of thinking them as thinking about this as a design principle for how we operate with our customers before we get ourselves into those situations. So building best practices, communicating best practices, verifying that best practices are working by the different regions, and then building those practices and those experiences into um, your playbooks with your customers is, is what we're promoting here. And we're doing that proactively, um, but there's way too many customers coming through the door with these bad expectations that lead to unnecessary risk and implementation. And that's what we need to evolve collectively. And just about that, uh, the other thing, development, and it is the fundamental is like, because Europe is in this transition, going from the clinical trials directive into the clinical trials regulation, there are still studies which have been approved under the directive. So as such, under the directive, it's the old standard, i.e. the expectations, it's really hard to educate that. You've got multiple ethics boards, such a cost of order, and it isn't clearly, doesn't clearly state in the clinical trials directive what is or isn't included in the ethics submissions. It's the clinical trials regulation that clearly defines that. So the first question would be is when, when somebody comes up and asks you the question, and says, okay, what is this study approved under? If it's under clinical trials regulation, then we can move forward and actually, then that's where the education and training comes aboard. If it's under the directive, fair enough, it stays under the directive and the old standards have to be in place. But one thing I will highlight is, is for sponsors, they need to look at their studies, which are currently running in Europe at the moment of time, because another key important date is the 31st of January, 2025. Any study that's been approved under the clinical trial directive that is still running as of the 1st of February, 2025, needs to be reapproved under the clinical trials regulation. So it's something that we need to look at across the board in this. So when, you, when we're asking about this is to understand what is this study approved under and what, do, what, do, what are the impacts of that moving forward as well. Hey, Paul, there's some young guy who just joined us up here in the room in Clubhouse, Joe Dustin, I think you've, heard of that name once or twice. Joe, if there's someone in the room who doesn't know you, please introduce yourself, share your question or thought on today's topic. Well, first, it's just really nice to see Paul Taylor and Chris here. It's been a while, guys. Good, Good to, see to see you, you too. Um, likewise. Um, yeah, Joe Dustin, uh, uh, head of ECOA at Medible. Um, so we, we share a lot of the same challenges, right? Paul, you and I for sure have have seen these issues go for years and years and years throughout the many years that we've all been involved in this world. And Craig, I think that you stated very, very clearly and I think accurately that we're kind of, we're in our own way. I remember being in a, in a session at Scope in 2018, I think it was 2019, 2018. And it was, there was a round table around the barriers of adoption to e-consent globally. And it was very, uh, a, it, I'm, I'm drawing a corollary to the conversation we're having, right? The barriers to global adoption of e-consent was, first of all, it wasn't just global, it was just any adoption in general. And the biggest answer we came up with was, we're in our own way. It's ours, it's us. <laughs> us being those in, in pharma and those in decision-making spots that, um, that just don't don't pull the trigger and don't uh, see the value or whatnot, but but it's those that even see the value. It's convincing the others that it's worth it or worth the risk or worth changing something for better, right? Um, the other side to that was I want to be able to deploy one solution globally with all the different country things. But, you know that evolved over time. We're in a good place now, um, and so I, I, I see the 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 only thing I've seen that even remotely fixes this. And it goes to some of the key milestones that in this process, whether it's decentralized trials, whether it's ECOA, whether it's um, rolling out some process, the, the first milestone is like the first submission to the IRB. It's not first patient in. It's the IRB. That, that, that thing is like the main milestone, right? So obviously this conversation is important. Um, 
the only way to change internally is to somehow create that space for innovation in your goals um, at the at the highest levels, and to make it okay to try something different, and you'd be rewarded for trying something different in your job. And I found this in I found I have found some companies in in pharma biotechs CROs um, that do this. Uh, I would say the majority don't. Um, but when that happens, you create like this safe space to try new things and you're not worried if, if, it, if it doesn't work, at least you tried. Now, of course you can't go too crazy off the reservation. You still have to, you know, get your, get your trials done. You still have milestones to meet. And, but th- that, that one thing takes away the big risk factor from an internal team in pharma, which for the most part is if you don't make your first patient in, bad things happen. And if we take that risk away, um, it sort of just makes sense to try other things because you can still try it. You're still going to get things done, but like everyone's so tied to a date that it just clouds a lot of other things to happen. Um, yeah, I could, I couldn't agree more. Seen that too. I, I couldn't agree more, Joe. And you know, it's funny that you draw the conclusion to, you know, some of the fun things that are going on in e-consent and, you know, that opens up its own Pandora's box, but you know, something that, that I would say that we've misinterpreted there too is, you know, we're, we're forcing all of these and there's 75 companies now pretending to do what we do. Right. If you think about it, right. Um, forcing all of these technology pathways for, you know, consent and control and consent with patients. And, you know, the bottom line is, is the institutions have had pathways for this forever. And, you know, we're trying to reimagine all of these things that work. Um, and we're adding all this waste. And as you rightly say, we're in our own way. And that started from day one with, you know, how do we influence the IRBs to adopt this electronic stuff? And now that's taken off and now it's localized and now it's regional and it's crazy. But the bottom line is we're seeing opportunities to transform that. And if we talk to our customers about making these strategic impediments to test, right? follow the lean startup way, fail fast, fail quick, you know, but the bottom line is, is that there are clear views that, you know, this is changeable and it allows us, you know, to focus on the things that matter in going through implementations and building better experiences for sites and patients. And for me, that's, that's where we all need to evolve is a more outside in way of, of thinking about those experiences rather than, you know, here's the thing we want to sell, please buy it. By the way, at the same time, I'm also appreciative of the fact that most companies now, especially pharma and those trying to push their pipeline through, the number one thing that they care about right now is speed. And so if you're going to take a risk on trying something new, if, 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 if it causes you to take longer, it's not very attractive to, to do that now, right? But if it actually helps, what could it mean? If your startup takes a little longer, but the overall trial shortens, what would that mean, right? Look at the bigger picture. Yeah. So that's a well, we we so Joe, uh, go no, ahead. go for it, man. Um, so Joe, just to expand what you said, you know, you've been in innovation teams, uh, you know, both in pharma and uh, and on the service side. Um, so you talked about you know the the incentives being about you know the milestones like first patient in. I remember a long time ago on stage asking a group of drug developers um, to tell me what the science of timelines was. And there was deathly silence in these thousands of people who apparently did this for a living, but not one person could explain to me how timelines are really work, was the science behind them. Um, and my joke was that my understanding was, let's take an example of biotech, uh, that the CEO goes to an investor conference and makes up a date for the NDA and then goes back to his head of R&D and says, make it happen and goes down the line. So my question is, when we live in a capitalistic system where clearly, you know, investors care about that speed and getting to your NDA, um, how do innovation teams and others who are working actually on more ground level, how do they compete with the fact that, you know, like you just said, speed is everything and really this innovation that um, you're trying to implement uh, has to not slow the sounds, hopefully. How do we do a better job, uh, whether it's in innovation groups or leadership in ops? how do we communicate that so that we can be successful? Or is it, like you said, that unless it's speeding things up, we're not doing it, even if it's way better for the patient? 
it's it's so hard there, there's there's no one silver bullet for sure um and those who have been or are currently in sort of innovation teams in various roles in various companies in our industry they know that they can only go so far um the the real trick is to embed that stuff in something that can actually affect operations and that is the hardest part because they don't want to take any risks because they're actually doing the work right you could be off to the side doing all these new things proving out the case studies doing pilots doing proof of concepts but until you do it in a real study um you know that's where it matters and then as soon as you try it's like oh yeah not me i don't want to be first you know and, and like it goes back to the whole goals thing you gotta set the goal to be like well if you are first that's an advantage for you. Nobody thinks that way. Um, and uh, so that that's... I have seen some incentive models you know, that work aligned to that, though, Joe. Yeah. And it was in real studies. But to your point, the incentive, it was sort of tricky. The incentive yeah. was to learn. The ask was not to significantly compromise last patient in. Okay, so that gave you a lot of freedom to operate. It didn't mean that teams were signing up wholeheartedly, but it, they knew that they could take some different approaches without risking their program. I love the idea of the don't compromise the last patient out because then you're really over uh, your if you could even bring that sooner that's an advantage, right? As long as you don't go over it. I mean, what, one of the things that, that we all need to do more of is, is three words, standardization, 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 <laughs> right? You've heard me preach this since the beginning of time, Joe. And, you know, it's, it's central to our ability to respond in a predictable fashion to every situation that we face. But every time we enter new variation in what we misinterpret, we add unnecessary risk. And that's something that we need to all do better at. And, you know, the focus on standardization helps us ideally only work on things that are net moved customers allow us to operate to challenging scenarios where maybe CAOs have made public statements that, you know, support funding and ultimately a lot of the, the biotech struggles that, you know, fund studies today can still continue. And it's on us to support that cycle time that's needed. But, you know, there's things we're doing today that aren't necessary. They're getting in the way of that and we've got to educate. So, Craig, was that a plug for DTRA? Well, you know, there was a question on my mind as far as what can collaborations do here to help. In fact, Dustin, that was one of your original questions in the chat, pointing whether that's the uh, ECOA consortium and CPATH and working better together, or is that something DTRA? What is there? Is there something here that a collaborative effort would be a, would be helpful to to achieve our shared goal? Paul, yeah, I Joe, guess my question there, yeah. Joe. Yeah, I was actually asking Paul because I actually I'm not sure. Um, the I know the whole screenshot issue has been definitely a topic that's been brought up uh, because the regulations are changing, the needs are there, um, and then there's that group within within CPATH that is basically working better together between sponsors, CROs, and suppliers, and technology companies. And this is one of the main. Well, this is one of the major topics because it affects timelines, right? Like you said before, it's standardization and the expectations globally means it's not so much building the tool. We have the tools, but, but we can shave off how many weeks in, in supporting this. So I, I thought that was one of the topics. I don't know if you had any uh, involvement there or any other context. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, from my perspective, it, it needs to be a collaborative thing in order to change the way the industry thinks about this, because there's folks in our service provider teams that, talk about this as a misinterpreted thing even today, you know, and we're adding to that misunderstanding. So, you know, there's an opportunity to produce something that is collective, you know, akin to, if you think about, remember when the UAT standards were published on how UAT needs to work and all the misinterpretations of what that looked like early days, you know, there's an opportunity to 
to rethink this and publish a new standard for folks to practice and adopt. And, you know, you, you publish that standard, you bring that standard into strategies and in your, in your governance models, and you force your customers to think differently. And, you know, people respond to those, those forums as a global object versus an individual object. So I think there would be um, some value in writing something with more than, you know, Paul Taylor or Chris Watson's view of the world, right? So this is this is our opportunity to address this as an industry. And one thing I'd also bring about as well, which brings out order to a broader perspective as well, because also, yeah, this is the DTRA, so cross border. We're talking about decentralized trials, and from a European perspective, the guidance that came, or the recommendations rather than regulations, the recommendations equivalent to guidance that came out in December, it clearly states that they they recommend <laughs> as part of the part one, which is the protocol submission, we include a cover letter that details the decentralized elements that want to be incorporated into a study. Now that goes back to the original question about how do you know what you're going to implement in the study? So there's actually a, a new thought about when we're thinking about protocol submissions to the EU regulators, of course, right at that point in time is identifying those decentralized elements so you can actually support that submission. It, once you've got the part one approval, even if you haven't mentioned the decentralized elements, there, it doesn't mean you can't utilize decentralized components in the study, just do an amendment. But it's actually, again, it's a, a changing of working patterns, understanding what is required doing more work up front to understand and design better studies for patients, which is actually was all about what decentralization is all about as well. But that's one thing to bring into mind as well, is that under the CTR, we've got to start thinking about decentralized elements to be included as part of the part one submission. Thank you so much on that, Christopher. Thanks, Joe, for jumping up here and sharing some uh, thoughts and questions as well. We have just another two or three minutes. Paul, any final thoughts on the conversation so far today? I'm also seeing a couple of uh, perspectives in the chat. If, uh, if folks haven't taken a look there, there's always great conversation going on there. But Paul, do you have any, um, any closing thoughts as we wrap up our, our hour together? Um, at the end of the day, we need to be responsible on you know what we can and can't do. I love what Hassan says here. Some tech vendors who sell innovation actually over promise and under deliver, and you know that that adds a lot of the risk first approaches that you know customers add waste on. And you know it's on all of us to learn from those experiences and eliminate those situations when they occur, so that we are focusing on you know offering what we can do learning from what we can't do and evolving continuously and you know this is a great example of uh, one of those things that i think we can reset on but that requires trust right um so my advice is to work those relationships and i really do think a, a collaborative paper that goes across you know the, the the tech leaders in this space would would make folks stand up and listen to you know what the possibility here is with the with the ctr reset because i'm frankly tired of people going hey you know let's talk about submitting all 50 of those languages all at once now based on the new guidelines and you know having to reset those understandings and you know if we do that as an industry we can maybe focus on the the innovation that is needed and, and not the innovation that isn't you know what I love about today's conversation, Jane, is the uh, is this sort of theme of of accountability and ownership. Uh, Paul and Christopher didn't come on here to complain and lament that IRBs are being mean to us and making us do all sorts of work. It's sort of this story about, look, this is a problem we we helped to create, and we could pivot and help to um, and help take action collectively and individually. To, to address this and make this easier for everyone in the ecosystem. Um, so, you know, that makes me happy to hear. Amir, any final thoughts before we wrap up? Well, I'd also like to point out, it looks like from the symbols that both Paul and Christopher were uh, clubhouse virgins, and I've got to say, they were real pros at it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Appreciate it. We're, we're excited about being part of this community and we're looking forward to being invited back. That is inevitable. Um, well, I'd just like to thank Paul and Christopher from Thread for stepping forward with today's topic and being such fabulous co-hosts. I, after, you know, I, I, I was saying I, I need to try this cherry beer here in Brussels. Amir keeps uh, 
uh, challenging me. Why have I not tried it yet? I said, I'm going to wait till after Clubhouse today. I, um, I hear it's strong. But, you know, Paul, you had this so well covered. I really should have been sitting here with a cocktail after all. <laughs> well, but cheers to you. <laughs> Thank you. And cheers to you as well. Um, whether you're joining us on the Decentralized Podcast, on your favorite podcast channel, or uh, with us live here on Clubhouse, make sure you're giving us a, a follow or subscribe so you can stay current. And remember, if you have a topic you'd love to see us cover in the weeks ahead, drop that message to Jane, Amir, or Craig, or in that chat in Clubhouse, you'll find the Secretariat email account at DTRA. Let us know. And if you are coming to the DIA, we look forward to seeing you both at the panel that we mentioned earlier, but also at the DTRA meetup taking place during DIA as well. It's a great opportunity for folks in the Boston area or anyone coming in to participate. We'll look forward to seeing you there. And for everybody else, we'll see you all next week. Um, to Paul and Christopher, thank you once again.